0: Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. This is part six of a series in which Dorje Lopan Dr. Hanlai teaches about the five Buddha families, a tantric organizing principle for understanding our own original wakefulness. Getting to know the five Buddha families can allow us a better understanding and recognition of the nuances and qualities of our own awakened nature, like a colorless light when refracted. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, Tibetanspirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Questions? Questions? If you're still there. <laughs> Very quiet, everybody. Someone's typing. Oh, someone's typing. Good. We'll let them type. Yes? Are there wrathful deities? Yes, yeah, oh yeah. So maybe next Sunday we can cover some of the more, you know, kind of point out which is which. And so, for example, here not so much wrath. Let's say, let's see, let's say we organize like we put these deities that you see represented here into the families. Uh, Tara is the Karma family. In one context, in one context, she is the uh, Karma family. Because she is called, uh, in one context, uh, she is called Samaya Tara. And she's associated with the northern direction, green in color, and the element uh, of wind. So this last column here. Uh, In other contexts, Tara is lotus family. When she's associated with the mythology of Avalokiteshvara, a tear drop from Avalokiteshvara, and then he, she becomes like lotus family.
2: Yeah?
1: But in this five Buddha principle, uh, it's said that the consort of Amogha city in one system, is Samaya So that's Tar. Uh, then um, abundance, which is Jambala, the deity of abundance. Uh, so so she's called the mother of Buddha activities. Uh, so again, all accomplishing activities. Then Jambala, abundance is which family Radna, Radna jewel, uh, the jewel family uh, the 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 embodiment of the wisdom of equality. So kind of this expansiveness, everything is equal uh, and not everything is equal equally poor, but equally expansive and abundant. So that's Jamala. Um, over there, the two Bodhisattvas Buddha figures uh, on the right. When we talk about left-right, this is just like the, the, the tradition, the custom. Whenever we talk about deities, right and left, it's always from their perspective. Stage right, stage left. Yeah. So on the right, is the Buddha of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara, and he is um, the Lotus family. And on the left is Manjushri. Uh, and Manjushri is the Buddha family. Uh, Buddha family. And there's something about the position of these two sitting across from each other. There's some superstition associated with this too.
0: It's north and south.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's north-south, but also... Wind and earth. Hmm? Wind and earth. Uh, wind and earth, but... Uh, so... In, uh, when things are right when things are moving in the right direction, right, that abundance will increase because of the wind. When things are not right, the abundance is unstable. Blow away. <laughs> so we've got to be careful here, placing these two together, <laughs> across from each other. It could either Tara's principle could either encourage the abundance and cause it to increase or cause it to go away. <laughs> so here are the subtle kind of workings of interdependence. Other people call it superstition. <laughs> Well, Elise, you want to (laughs) attempt? Yeah. Start with the first part.
2: Okay. If you quickly cut somebody off when (laughs) they are. I see. Alright. If you quickly cut somebody off when they are embarrassing themselves. Uh My son has Asperger's and Uh we do it all the time. Uh Mm -hmm. Example, when he was three, he spoke too loudly in Mm -hmm. restaurants. Mm -hmm. He would only stop if we got angry at him, Mm -hmm. but others were annoyed. Anger seemed to be the only way he could hear our Mm -hmm. suggestion to stop. Is that an example of correct usage of what could otherwise be an afflictive emotion? In my understanding, Passion or desire is not necessarily a fault, Mm -hmm. but the fault is in the attachment to the object of desire.
1: Could you please comment on that? Mm, Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Simple question. Answer is correct. (laughs) Where it gets sticky is... where it gets sticky is that uh, motivations are slippery uh, in the purest sense of that, of course it's correct especially parents uh, examples are given a lot uh, if a child uh, in Buddhist texts they give this example, very similar you know, in this situation uh, exactly, this, just a story slightly different Whenever they talk about wrathful deities, they give the example of a child that is about to fall into a river, and a parent very forcefully, wrathfully yanks the child back, pulls the child back. It is an act of violence, but it's completely motivated by care and concern. So that itself has been used as an example of how wrath or anger or swiftness, right? Mm -hmm. The emphasis that I gave, swiftness of action can look very violent to others who don't understand what's going on,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Now, as to is this therefore right or wrong, It depends on the individual. So we come full circle back to bodhicitta. Motivation. Setting the highest motivation. That everything we do, we do because we want to be able to benefit others. We want to be able to uh, be kind to others. How we do that, um, we, we should not be too quick to, um, see, actions that are clearly kind of productive of good, we don't need to problematize too much. We still need to be suspicious a little. What do I mean by that? Say, generosity, for example. There are problem, problematic aspects of generosity, like certain. Since you know the, the subject of parents was brought up, uh, parents kind of guilt their kids by burdening them with generosity. Then you have to live according to my expectations and my rules. So there's that, right? Now, even that, it could be motivated by very skillful compassion. I don't know. It's hard to say. But a lot of times, it's about control. And then, obviously, that is a problematic. But my point is more that, between the two, acts of generosity, even though you can be suspicious of and need to be careful about, is not as dangerous as acts of... For example, stinginess or violence. Or wrath. Because those acts have a bigger potential to cause harm than, you know, a cheesecake being sent to your house every two days.
2: (laughs) What (laughs) could be harm?
1: Yeah, what harm? (laughs) Right? As opposed to like being cold or unresponsive. Now, even though being cold and unresponsive might be a very skillful way of dealing with the child, because you know the way this child is, but you've got to be extra careful when you're, you're using you know, things that are... yeah. So, so the see, the, 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 the tricky thing about Dharma or Buddhism is that there is no clear thou shall or thou shall not. If only, you know, it was that clear. It's all kind of murky. And and the murkier it gets, the more self-awareness, the more wisdom has to be there. So they say that only bodhisattvas with, you know, eighth level and above, and what they mean by that is like their wisdom mind is so purified of afflictive emotions, then they have a better success rate in using less uh, acceptable behavior. But then on the outside, we can't tell. We don't know what's going on. So one thing is they say, then reserve judgment on our side if we can't really know what's going on. But then of course, you know, in some cases, you know what you need to make a judgment and you know call child protective services.
2: <laughs> so the three variables that seem to come into play mm-hmm. when you're talking
1: is motivation, right. context, context, and behavior. Yeah. What you do. Right. Here's a professor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. Motivation, context, and the act. Balancing these three. Always checking. Right? Then they say of the three, motivation is the most important. But frankly, I I, I have to say that I'm not comfortable with uh, Buddhist teachers kind of without nuancing it, just say the most important thing in actions is motivation, and then they move on. Mm -hmm. I know what they mean, and in fact, the texts do say things like that, but I think it's really important in the complex kind of world that we live in now, to spend a little bit more time to talk about just motivation itself. Eh, I don't know. Right? I see this like in Asia, People are motivated so much in releasing life. Then they release the wrong kinds of creatures into the wrong environment. Ah! All kinds of consequences come from there. There's another story, not in Asia. This was a a case in uh, Northern Virginia about 10 years ago. Uh, right around i was leaving grad school i remember reading about this that, that in northern virginia the the state like the wildlife department suddenly had a problem in their hands there were these chinese carps that was invading mm-hmm. all the, lake. the lakes up there mm-hmm. and they traced this whole problem back to someone's compassion mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What happened was that um, there was this Chinese family whose father had a kind of illness that the Chinese doctor said that he needed to eat this fresh carp, like cooked in a medicinal way. Mm-hmm. So they imported this carp from China. But when the carbs arrived, dad's illness was over. So they felt bad. They're like, we we should not kill these carps because our fathers, they were Buddhists. They're like, you know, our father's health is good. And so to prolong his life, to have compassion, Buddha says to release them. So they released them into the the pond, some local pond. The thing about these carps is they started to eat all the fish that was in that pond. And get this, these carps have that allow them to hop onto the ground and walk to the next body of water. Apparently, they can be out of water for like six hours and not die. Wow. So they just walked to the next pond and got into the next pond. And so suddenly now, the wildlife department is rewarding people to go kill these carbs. Now... Motivation being pure is one thing, right? Context is important. Action is important.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in a less kind of, in, a, in another way, I said, you know, I don't know, y'all might disagree with me. Probably you will. I said, actually, I believe like, you know, like a certain precedent of the past recent past you know motivation was very good but execution not so execution important. and knowledge and <laughs> yeah. understanding of the complexity of the world is a little bit lacking yeah.
2: mm. I, I think I read about that on the internet right? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know the context of the the dad uh, the dad uh, yeah. illness
1: yes yeah it's the dad's illness and uh, oh wow so, yes, good. So, motivation, context, and the action. You weighing out all, all those parts.
3: We had one more that would line it up with the traditional one. Would yeah. It would be like the reflection upon the action after it happens. We talked about rejoicing Till the end of the completion. Of mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, but that I think... That, I don't know if it fits in the, these three that Gary has pointed out. So that is more about karma. So a, a karma becomes complete when there's intention. Slightly different from motivation, but that here intention meaning, the opposite of that is um, like sneezing. Sneezing is an act with no intention. It's like a natural response, Right. So intention is like, you know, you put your mind to it, I want to do it. So what what Terry is referring to is the the four elements in actions that make an action into full-fledged karma. We talk about karma a lot. Exactly when does an action become a full karma? Uh, There is intention, there is effort, there is the completion of the act and then there is um, like, no, here is like, good. That was done. A a certain satisfaction. When these four are present then it's a full-fledged karma. Uh, In the Theravada system it's actually five. Uh, The object has to exist they say. Before karma is complete. So, so in the Theravada system, what it means here is that you have the intention to kill. Uh, you, you, you made the effort to kill. Uh, you killed. And the object is there. The ob- there's an object that can be killed. needs to be present. Uh, and then... Uh, you rejoice in the killing. Then it completes. But basically, whether four or five, that's how you complete an action. Um, then in medieval Buddhist texts, uh, they go into this complexity of, I want to kill Zack. I took the steps to kill. But I end up killing Edwina. Is that
2: what?
1: I end up killing Edwina instead oh, of Zach. Oh, oh, oh. So what kind of karma is there? So if, if if like those four are separated out into two situations, so there are all these types of debates, like, you know. Because it matters, you know, if if, if it happens that, you know, what who I intended to kill is a great bodhisattva that for whatever reason I have, you know. A grudge against, and then I end up, you know, killing an evildoer <laughs> What kind of karma would that be? You know, so they have discussions like that.
2: That Zach really wanted to kill. So. All oh, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you know, the opposite of that would be, you know, and the reason why they don't use the, the example of, I want to make an offering to Adrina, but I accidentally gave it to Zach, and Adrina is a Buddha. And Zach is an evildoer. So they don't discuss that, and it gets back to that point. Like those types of actions, although they are false, they're not as dangerous as when we use actions that are more overtly could be harmful. So back to the issue of wrath, you know, and and, and things like that. Uh, if 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 wrathful actions are involved, then extra careful with context and you know, motivation. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, yes, I, I bring it up because I can see a difference when I do a swift action when the situation calls for it, mm-hmm. and afterwards I'm upset mm-hmm. and I'm not. So mm-hmm. to me, I wonder whether that after is like confirmation that yes, my motivation was actually pure and I did it, and, mm-hmm. then I'm go- and then I'm done. Yes, but if I do it and I feel like churned up afterwards, I mm-hmm. suspect that my motivation was not pure right. because I'm actually uh, upset and mm-hmm. angry. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered whether that, that could fit in that schema. You know, mm. uh, rejoicing afterwards is like kind of post, post-action awareness that, re- that confirms your motivation or not.
1: But sometimes that, that, uh, that kind of stress, right, can also be ill-informed. You've done something good, and Zach comes around and says, "No, you shouldn't have done it." <laughs> then you regret, right? Yeah, I just
3: don't mean that. I mean like the the embodied, like body awareness, like feeling churned up or not. Mm-hmm. You know, with the idea that actions done of pure motivation are in accord with reality, and mm-hmm. they're not. They don't churn you up. You just feel like
1: yeah sure I, I think that you know like depending on how how subtle you're kind of in tune with that mm-hmm. yeah because some people like totally they're not churned up at all mm-hmm. they could kill someone. yeah they could kill someone <laughs> and then you know go home and be a loving father you know it's like and that has to do I think much more when you're in tune then you, you can trust more and more you know, that kind of like immediate feeling or, or after a while it comes up for sure, yeah. I
3: have a question. Uh-huh. When working as volunteers with homeless and drug addicts, sometimes mm-hmm. they are very demanding. Mm-hmm. When does compassion and feeling you're being pressured and then afterwards feeling guilty of not either giving in or making them aware that they should be grateful?
1: Yeah, I think that situation is very similar to what um, Marianne asked earlier on about boundaries. And so I think there are two sets of issues, it seems like. There is, of course, the Buddha always gives, you know, this is what you could do. And ultimately, in the Buddha state, this is how you could act. But then there is the reality of our situation. Uh, So... In that situation, you need to know when to have the path of of abandonment, so to say. Like like this situation is getting too sticky. I need to step away because I don't have the power to handle it. Mm -hmm. So as much as I want to help, I simply don't have the power to help right now. And if I get involved, I'm going to make it worse. So just because you are called to give everything that you have to give doesn't mean you can give right now everything. Yeah, so again, it goes back to you need to train toughness, inner toughness. You have to train inner toughness. Then, when you have the inner toughness, then it becomes spontaneous but then there's no situation of being violated (laughs) but until then if you do it and then you feel violated then that's the classic story of uh, Shariputra and the ridiculous guy who wanted an eye or an arm depending on who's telling the story you all know the story Uh, They tell a story about premature compassion. Uh, Compassion that is kind of immediate, but um, the inner toughness is not there yet, or the wisdom is not enough yet. So this story is very funny, very violent. A lot of Buddhist stories are very funny and very violent, and kind of ridiculous but it's good. It makes a real good point. It says that in the past life of one of the Buddha's great disciples, his name was Shariputra, uh, in a long, many, many lifetimes ago, he generated Bodhicitta. And he says, I want to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And then so he received the instructions of how whenever people ask you for something, you have to give it to them. And so he was really taken by that teaching. Then it says that soon after that whole life-transforming event, an evil Brahmin, and Brahmins are almost always evil in Buddhist (laughs) stories comes along, and he meets Shariputra, and he says to Shariputra, or Shariputra many, many lifetimes ago. I don't know what his name was at that point, And he said, Could you give me one of your eyes? Like eyes, yeah? Uh-huh. Then it said that Shariputra looked at the Brahmin and realized that the Brahmin didn't have either of his eyes. So Shariputra was thinking, Oh, maybe he needs my eye to restore his sight. So Shariputra kind of like, well, I made the vow. So he gouged out one of his eyeballs and he gave it to this guy, this Brahmin without eyes. And what the Brahmin did next was, he dumped the eyeball down on the ground and he stomps on it. So of course Shariputra was shocked, outraged regretting what he did now and he said what did you do that for and the uh, guy without eyes said I really like that chick sound <laughs> when you step on eyeballs so Shari Pritchard said forget it I'm not going to benefit all beings. I'm just going to check myself out of this craziness. I'm just going to check myself out of samsara. I'm going to be an arhat. No thank you, Bodhisattva.
2: <laughs>
1: so they tell this story to say, do not practice the Bodhisattva path this way. Yes, it is good to give completely. But to begin the training, they say, don't use Vajra. It's not as precious to me iPhone. <laughs> right hand, give to left hand. Left hand, give to right hand.
2: Mm.
1: Train that feeling of giving first. Mm. Uh, then give it to someone, maybe for three days. <laughs> maybe just three hours. I don't know. Three days, not really. <laughs> to someone that you really like. And say, here, you can have my phone for three days or three hours. And feel the joy. Mm. Then slowly. So this is what is this about? Training the heart. Train building the strength to give. Until you can give all. Until you can give the guy who gets his pleasure from hearing the squishing of eyeballs. However the guy got to that state, who knows? But there are quote unquote sick people like that in the world. <laughs> that's the point of the story well, one of the points of the story yes there are sick people like that in the world but even that if that's, that's if that is their ability if their merit is so small that they have to derive some kind of pleasure and happiness from hearing the sound of eyeballs being squished and if that's what it gets down to a Buddha can do it. It's like wow. There is a, a a slight different version of that story. In this version, it's someone without hands coming to Shariputra, and said, "Could you give me one of your hands?" And Shariputra looked at him and said, "Well, I have two. I could get by with one. He doesn't have any." So then Shariputra you know, picked up a big, you know, knife or whatever, and he was about to, like, you know, lobbed off his left limb. Then he thought, oh, no, 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 right limb will be more useful to the guy. (laughs) This is a right-handed world. But he said, oh, no, 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 right hand will be more useful to the guy. So then he, you know, lobbed off his right limb, probably took longer to saw it off, you know, he Mm. he was right-handed, so, even oh more God. plain and gore, right? So he lopped it up and it, you know, fell on the ground so he picked it up with his left hand and he gave it to the guy and the guy was angry. Why? Because the guy said, you're so rude at giving people things with your left hand. <laughs> Because, yeah, Brahmins again, you know. Indian culture. Your left hand, you don't use to interact with people. You use to go to the toilet and clean yourself. So the guy refuses his gift because you're so rude, you know, using his left hand to give. And Shariputra said, that's it. I'm checking out of samsara myself. I'm checking myself out. You guys can hang out in there if you want. I'm, I can't do it. <laughs> it's 4.30 so next Sunday uh, we'll continue uh, with this uh, that's maybe we can talk about the five aggregates uh, in terms of the confused state and the purified state and then we can talk more specific about how these five Buddha families uh, in the context of, like, Vajrayana practice, you know, like giving some examples of how it's um, done and, and what role it plays in all of that, in more concrete. So dedication, what page is that? Page 147.
0: The determination to accomplish the highest welfare for all sentient beings who surpass even a witch-granting jewel,
1: may I train
0: to hold them as supremely precious. Whenever I associate with others, may I train to think of myself as the lowest among all, and respectfully hold others to be supreme from the very depths of my heart. In all actions, may I train to search into my mind and as soon as an afflictive emotion arises, endangering myself and others, I will firmly face and avert it. May I train to cherish beings of bad nature and those oppressed by strong sins and suffering, as if I had found a precious treasure very difficult to find. When others out of jealousy treat me badly with abuse, slander, and so on, may I train to take on all loss and offer victory to them. When one whom I have benefited with great hope unreasonably hurts me very badly, may I train to view that person as an excellent spiritual guide. In short, may I train to offer to everyone without exception all help and happiness directly and indirectly and respectfully take upon myself all harm and suffering of my mother's. May I train to keep all these practices undefiled by the stains of the eight worldly conceptions and by understanding all phenomena like illusions be released from the bondage of attachment.
1: The point that uh, Terry brought up, hmm. there's one thing there I think... Hmm we tend to think about sort of the mind and the body as kind of two things. Yeah? And uh, a lot of the Buddhist teachings also seem to be talking about them as if they are two separate things. And, and in many contexts, yes, of course they are. But these teachings were given in the context where the Cartesian divide of body and spirit yeah? it's, it's, isn't like there like body against spirit. And so, I think what you're talking about too is that there's sort of like this innate sense, like you physically don't feel right when you've done something negative. And of course, it's not just the physical, it's it's also the mind, body, and interaction. It's kind of a barometer. Um, And that barometer um, becomes more and more reliable when the more you have purified yeah, then, then it's more and more accurate
2: mm-hmm.
1: right now that barometer is a little bit untrustworthy <laughs> uh, but as you, you know, deepen your practice then that becomes good you know? it, it kind of have gut sense of like uh, right or wrong that can come from there is
2: that your conscience
1: that sounds too much kind of the mind thing, you know. What was your question? Is that the conscience? Yeah. I don't know. It could be. I don't know. I'm not answering yes or no. I'm just saying when we, whenever I say that I, I tend to think more about, you know, the the more overtly kind of mind part. Uh but but it's it's a felt sense. Yeah. It's a felt sense. Uh when we do something you know even in the confused state the the, the body feels it
2: yeah
1: um, and and the body feels it and the body might like it yeah? the body here again not with that strong divide you know the body mind but yeah definitely for sure i think we we need to also understand that when we talk about body and mind body doesn't exist without mind mind doesn't exist without body you know the five aggregates kind of come together and even in God realms and all that, it's subtle body. Yeah. Nonetheless, bodies exist. Uh, in the formless realm, yeah, in that case, it's just you know mental states. But that's kind of ir- irrelevant to our experience. Uh, in our experience, I think. And then the other thing I want to you know, also say, uh, reminded me of, is uh, one time I remember, I think it was Lama Narayan Ramachandran, which he was giving teachings today. <coughs> And um Jamrun was translating and, and Rinpoche said something about you know the mind going outside. And um, so Jamrun was translating, you know, really good translator, she was translating that. And then she, she gave a footnote and she said, by the way, you know, Rinpoche didn't say this, but I, I should point out in, in in Buddhism when we say the mind going out, it's way before what we think the mind going out once the mind within even like our mental consciousness separates into the subject and object, the mind has already gone out. So it's a very subtle going out. Yeah, we, we tend to think of like, don't let your mind wander out as the mind like, you know, <laughs> right, going out. We think, oh. So then we think what we need to do is to pull in everything. But actually, it's not. Not letting the mind going out is the mind not bifurcating into subject-object. But the thing is, right now, all of our experiences are bifurcated into subject-object. So the solution is not either, it's, it's also not, kind of, again, flattening it so that you don't feel the subject-object. Mm-hmm. And then you think, ooh, I'm very close to being enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Buddhist way is then to start with discerning clearly first subject and object the subjective end and the objective end of each experience as it arises that's the first step uh, then seeing uh, how the objective end of the experience lack substantiality lack inherent existence the content of your experience lacking. That's the next step. The third step is turning that around and then seeing how the subjective end of the experience also lacks inherent existence. Then, then when that, those two are realized, then experience, the subject-object divide, is no longer there. So you, can't get, you cannot get to the, you know, not having subject-object divide by numbing yourself or pretending. Because right now, our problem is also not understanding the relationship between subject and object. So, enlightenment and confusion is a very fine line. <laughs> yeah? as, as the five Buddha teachings, you know? like the naivet, the ignorance, and the dharmadhatu. It's very fine line. It's, it's, it's both has to do with subject and object being unclear. Being not distinguished. But the Buddha's not distinguishing subject and object and our not being able to distinguish subject and object are poles apart. Mm-hmm. So in the uh, Chan tradition it says um, if we miss by the breath of a hair okay. heaven and earth have separated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As subtle as that. That's why we need to split hairs.
2: Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.